0: What you're about to listen to is part four of a five-part series on the Crimean War. Parts one through three are pretty important if you want to understand what's happening here, so if you haven't, I recommend you check those out. If you're good, on with the show. The year, 1854, the place, the Crimea. The Russian winter has come and the armies face their greatest trial. It will take the heroism and determination of all their men and women to make their way through the melting dark. I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 30, The Crimea Part 4, The Melting Dark. I chose an especially cheerful and fun title for today's cheerful and fun episode. We're going to look at armies on the verge of falling apart, not from combat, but from the elements and from their own crippled supply lines, and see how men and women came to their rescue in the winter of 1854 to 1855. Hope you guys are ready to meet a lot of heroes and heroines, including the famous Florence Nightingale. Guys, I know it's part four of a series, my longest series so far, and I would be cruel and heartless if I didn't give you a quick recap. Now where were we? Let's see, got it, okay. So Queen Victoria's Europe was in an age of transformation, industrial revolution, romantic sentiment, reformist and nationalist dreams but in 1853, a dispute over the holy places of Jerusalem transformed into a great power struggle over the future of the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe. War began in 1853, and by 1854, Britain and France had come to the Ottoman's defense. When Russia was forced to back down and withdraw from the Danube, it seemed like the war could have ended there but the Allies decided to end the Russian threat by invading the Crimean peninsula and capturing the naval base of Sevastopol. They landed on the Crimea in September 1854, defeated the Russians at the Battle of the Alma, then laid siege to the city. But Sevastopol's surprising and heroic defense denied the Allied army a quick victory, and they were too weak to take the city outright. Russian counterattacks in the battles of Balaklava and Inkerman were bloody, dramatic, and indecisive. They didn't alter the course of the war. The four armies on the Crimea sat in their muddy, miserable trenches as the Russian winter approached. The end of the war had never seemed farther away. Now, if you don't remember any of that, you might have missed almost the last month of episodes, but no big deal. Just check out parts 1, 2, and 3 on the feed. I'll give you the chance to do that. 3, 2, one go time as always this is not just history but military history there's some dark and bloody stuff going on the podcast is pg-13 language is clean content is not there are some more disturbing descriptions and images than usual today not really violence so much as just gross nasty stuff we're talking about medical stuff here it's gonna be a lot of fun This is a warning in case you're in the middle of lunch. Next, all my sources, images, maps, some commentary will be in my big Crimean source post on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but everything I'm telling you is accurate, to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. The title of this episode comes from a book of poems I found about the Crimean War called Sonnets on the War by Alexander Smith and Sidney DeBell. I just found, like, all sorts of random materials in this conflict when I was doing my research. So I was looking through this thing absentmindedly when I found a sonnet called The Common Grave, which seems to describe a camp follower looking through the bodies on Inkerman Plateau trying to find her lost husband. The last few lines of the poem are, She neither cried nor wept. Nor did she see the many stark and dead that lay unburied at her side. All night she toiled, and at that time of dawn, when day and night do change, their more and less. And day is more. I saw the melting dark stir to the last, and knew she labored on. That little phrase, I saw the melting dark stir to the last, and knew she labored on, brought my thoughts to the forgotten and unseen work of women in history and in military history. And that seemed to sum up today's episode just in a nutshell. I've talked in this podcast about the equal importance of the combat units of an army and the support services that keep them going, and how often the latter goes unseen or unappreciated in popular and amateur military history. I've made the analogy of the teeth and the tail, that people always look at the teeth of an army but overlook the tail when the tail might honestly be more important sometimes. Last week in Part 3 with Balaklava and Inkerman, we saw what happens when the army's teeth fail, when poor leadership, bad tactics cost the Crimean War's armies thousands of lives. Want to know what happens when the tail fails? Well, we find out today, and it's actually a lot worse. Because the Crimean winter of 1854-1855 to was far, far more lethal than any battle of the war. The majority of today's episode will not feature these armies fighting each other, but the weather, the terrain, the conditions, and the complete collapse of their armies' tails. And this was not a winter in which all armies suffered equally. The differences between the armies I described in Part 2, especially their levels of organization and professionalism, would stand out clearer than ever. And when the noble leaders and generals failed, as we've seen being a trend lately, the people who weren't supposed to lead, the people who were supposed to mind their places, stepped in to save the day. This included common soldiers, the middle class, the working class, doctors and laborers and business owners, and most of all, women. Women. Women, who were supposed to be sheltered and protected in the Victorian age, where war was no place for ladies, had to brave the dangers and trials of the Crimean War to rescue the men. Army wives, local ladies, noble ladies, poor ladies, nuns, nurses, hordes of them, would be the salvation of the soldiers trapped on the Crimea. Just like the laboring woman in our poem, it was their efforts that would finally cause the dark to melt. Today, We will continue the story of the Crimean War. We'll shiver through the terrible winter of 1854-55 to as Tsar Nicholas I's favorite commanders, generals January and February, come to smite the armies on the Crimea. We'll see how the men and women of all the countries responded to save their stricken armies. And we'll also take a global look at the other fronts of the war, how the Caucasus, the Baltic, and even the Pacific all played a part in the story of the Crimean War. And I will tell you why it matters at the end of the story. In part five, I will tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is an epic slog through the snow and wind of the Russian winter, you are going to need a couple of breaks. These are your chance to pause, trim the bushes, change the laundry over. You forgot it, didn't you? Just do the thing you need to do. So clutch your greatcoat against the cold, huddle under your tattered tent, and think of home. Maybe tomorrow will be warmer but maybe not we're going back on campaign Darya Mikhailova was a kid a military brat who lived in Sevastopol with her father, a sailor in the Black Sea Fleet. She was only 17 when he was killed in the Battle of Sinope in 1853. The teenage Darya had to support herself, working as a laundress for the city's garrison. Just one more war orphan in the clogged streets of Sevastopol. But when the Allies landed on the Crimea, Daria began her journey into legend. She sold everything she had, including her father's fishing boat, her chickens, and her pig, to buy a horse and wagon. She used her father's old uniforms to disguise herself as a naval cadet, then took her wagon up to the battle lines of the Alma. The teenage war orphan rode around the battlefield, treating the wounded with vinegar and strips from her old dresses, saving many lives. After the Alma, Darya found herself under the guns of the Siege of Sevastopol. The wounded were going untreated, exposed, lying in their blood and filth in the city's hospitals. Daria, remember, 18 years old, organized a team of nurses to cope with the medical demands of the siege. All that winter, the women of Sevastopol served on the front lines, carrying men back from the redoubts and trenches under the leadership of the teenage girl that some call the Russian Florence Nightingale. Darya Mikhailova, remembered to Russian folklore as Dasha Sevastopolskaya, is one of our protagonists, our nurse, and she would save countless lives. The tragedy was that she had to do it at all, that the Russian army relied on the volunteer teenage girl to guide it through that dark winter. Her heroism was only necessary because of the failures of the high command. We left off last week with the Battle of Inkerman, with the Russians failing to drive the Allies off the Crimea, and with the British and French realizing they could not take Sevastopol before the winter came. They would have to hunker down and wait until 1855 to resume the attack. Remember, the whole Allied plan had basically been a smash-and-grab operation to land and seize Sevastopol quickly. That had not happened, and the British and French soldiers in the cold, muddy trenches knew the reputation of the Russian winter. They knew that the supply system was already not great. Imagine telling these guys, don't worry, the generals have it taken care of. Yeah, they've done an awesome job so far, right? Superstars over here. See, the generals had not laid on supplies for a winter campaign, cause they didn't expect to be here until winter. Everything was being delivered last minute and the British soldiers especially were already shivering, shivering under their threadbare summer uniforms. And on November 14th, two weeks after Inkerman, everything went to hell. The hurricane came out of nowhere. The entire Crimea was lashed by a massive storm, shrieking winds and sheets of rain slashing out of the blackened sky. Tents, clothes, bags were ripped away. Entire supply dumps were picked up like something out of Wizard of Oz as soldiers and their wives sought shelter in the trenches. Trees were uprooted, buildings demolished, and horses ran screaming into the night. The sick and wounded were blown out of the hospital and left crying in the mud. If it was bad on land, it was even worse at sea. The Allied supply fleets were sent reeling, ship after ship smashing into each other, floundering and disappearing under the waves. Fourteen French and twenty-one British ships sank in the hurricane. The most critical being the British steamship Prince, which carried forty thousand desperately needed winter uniforms. Other ships full of medical supplies, clothing, food for the men and forage for the animals, all were lost. When the hurricane finally cleared, the soldiers just stared at the muddy ruin of their camp. Then, because I guess the British and French were just on Santa's naughty list this year, the hurricane was immediately followed by a thick flurry of snow. Temperatures dropped to near sub zero, and soon men and women were covered in frost. Welcome to the Russian winter! Have fun! Tsar Nicholas I was thrilled with the news. His beloved army had failed to defeat the Allies and relieve Sevastopol, but now it appeared that the winter might do it for him. For the British and French still outside Sevastopol, the next four months would be a test far beyond the Alma or Balaclava or even Inkerman. Could they survive the Russian winter? The French recovered from the hurricane relatively quickly. Their supply base at Kamiesh was well-stocked and well-organized, so their logistics survived the storm. One of the first French priorities on the Crimea had been improving and macadamizing the road from Kamiesh to the front lines. So transport wasn't an issue. They had a big gravel road to roll on. Their men had plenty of cold weather gear as well as sturdy winter tents. The last 20 plus years of campaign experience in Algeria paid off in what military folks call field craft, that is surviving in field conditions. The French knew how to pack snow around their tents to block the wind, gather firewood from the, oceans, from the wreckage in the ocean, and forage for food. It helped that the French officers lived alongside their troops, knew their conditions, and experienced their hardships together. Remember, most of the French officers were middle class, not nobility or upper class, so they were often in the same boat as their soldiers, which meant they had a closer connection with them and understood their concerns better. The French commander, General Francois Conrobert, was cautious and indecisive on the battlefield, but he was also an outstanding manager and organizer, which is what the French needed this winter. He paid special attention to the food situation after the hurricane, and made sure his soldiers never went hungry or cold if he had anything to say about it. He was always visible, riding along the lines to the cheers of his men. The French supply base at Camilleche was a model of military efficiency. There were supply officers who oversaw the distribution of food, clothing, ammunition, medical supplies. The vivandieres, the women's sutlers, were always well supplied and they bustled along the lines with their wagons, bundled up like the kid from a Christmas story handing out food and wine. Kamiyash soon had bars, clubs, restaurants, and even brothels in full operation where soldiers could go for some R&R, like the French went out of their way to import French prostitutes so that the soldiers would, you know, feel like they were at home. On the other hand, the British. The British army experienced what can only be called a humanitarian crisis in the winter of 1854-55. This was for two reasons. First was Balaclava's inadequacy as a supply base. It would have been fine for a quick attack on Sevastopol, but that plan had gone the way of blockbuster video. The narrow harbor could only fit a small number of ships. Supplies from Balaclava to the front line had to travel seven miles up a narrow, unimproved road that turned into a quagmire in the winter. They could have used the road on the Causeway Heights, but the Russians had captured that road during the Battle of Balaklava, which made all the British supply problems that much worse. Exhausted horses would sink up to their chests in the morass of this road. By January, all supplies had to be carried by hand because the animals were dying at a catastrophic rate from exposure and starvation. Some horses ate each other's manes and tails in sheer desperation before dying by the hundreds. There just wasn't enough food for them. So the shivering redcoats in the trenches had barely any food, gear, or shelter. They still wore their ragged summer uniforms, and most of them had nothing but blankets. Morale collapsed as starving, freezing men, their beards covered in icicles, dug for roots to make a pathetic fire in the cold. Some literally froze to death. Their wives suffered even worse. Every regiment had a few women on the front lines with their men, some of whom even gave birth in this mud pit. It was worse than Washington's army at Valley Forge. No weather of the American Revolution, or honestly even the Civil War, could compare with that winter on the Crimea. Let's just ask Corporal William Jowett, our soldier, from his diary entry of December 17th, 1854. We are in a most deplorable condition, duty very hard. The most disgraceful thing imaginable, I am now almost barefoot and cannot get a pair of boots. During this weather, we cannot step without going six or eight inches deep in mud or water. We still have to carry our meat and biscuits up from balaclava. We are in a miserable plight when we return to camp and perhaps for duty that night. Some days we get a quarter pound of pork and about six ounces of biscuit. I am, at this moment, fit to eat my fingers' ends." And I'll remind you guys, the Siege of Sevastopol is still going on. You don't just have to live in this, you have to fight in it. The British and French are constantly fighting the Russians in the trench lines around the besieged city. There are small skirmishes and sallies and raids and assaults, all of it in freezing temperatures in the mud and the rain and the snow. The second main reason for the British disaster was their broken logistics system. It was a scandal, honestly, that the world's most powerful economy had such an underdeveloped military administration. I said back in part two that the British Army had no professional supply branch, no logistics corps, not even a transport corps that had been disbanded in the 1830s because to save money to trim that military budget. The lack of professional military education, supply organization, or anything resembling modern military administration in general was in stark contrast to the French army. The civilian supply clerks in Balaclava were notoriously lazy, obsessed with red tape and procedure shipments of food rotted on the docks only a couple of miles away from the men who needed it because their paperwork hadn't been processed ships were turned away from Balaclava Harbor because the harbor was full with unloaded ships or because their paperwork hadn't been processed correctly so they turned and went back with the supplies the men needed Balaclava was completely disorganized a miserable mud hole the bay full of disgusting trash and wreckage and rotting corpses human and animal jump on in guys water's great it was in this mud hole that ellen butler our army wife remember her from back in episode two finally arrived looking for her husband michael she made her way through one cramped hospital nasty ship and army camp after another and no one would help her she couldn't find him for days but she finally found her clever little irishman sick nearly to death with a fever in one of the balaclava cabins Imagine how they both reacted, her finding her husband after weeks of worrying about his fate, him when he saw his little English wife appearing like a dream from the shadows of Balaclava. She began to nurse her beloved husband back to health. And these guys, in the trenches and in the town, they were the lucky ones. The unlucky ones got to go to the hospital. Most of the Crimean War's casualties were not caused by bullets or blades or artillery shells were not suffered in combat. They were caused by disease. Fully 80% of the 800,000 deaths of the Crimean War were from communicable diseases that are virtually unknown in 21st century western nations. We have modern medicine, vaccinations, sanitation, hygiene. These guys didn't. They didn't even know Why diseases happened, they didn't understand what germs were. So, words like typhus, pneumonia, tuberculosis, dysentery, and worst of all, cholera dominate the casualty lists of the Crimean War. Cholera was the big killer, the grim reaper that stalked every army, a highly contagious waterborne illness that could kill hours after its symptoms appeared. The fevers and aches and skin inflammations of some diseases were bad enough, but the literal streams of crap that came from men with cholera and dysentery killed thousands. I focus on the British, just because the sources are better, but the Russians had it as bad, if not worse. If the British had a wimpy tail, the Russians didn't have no tail at all. One surgeon who visited a hospital in Sevastopol said he found the place full of wounded men who had never had their wounds dressed from the day of the Alma, except such dressings as they could make themselves by tearing up their own shirts. Some of them held out mutilated stumps of arms wrapped up in dirty rags and crying to him for assistance. The stench of the place was dreadful." The British Army had no professional medical service, only regimental surgeons and a handful of usually drunk orderlies. The British wounded were transported to a hospital at Scutari, a suburb of Constantinople. This journey was horrific. Men laid exposed on the deck of a ship for days, shoulder to shoulder, with barely a drop of water or bite to eat. Many died, as many as half on some ships, on the way to the hospital at Scutari. Then it got worse. The hospital at Scutari was a death trap. The few British doctors and orderlies were overwhelmed. Wounded men slept on rotten blankets. Their bodies swarmed with vermin, almost alive with bugs and rats, their exposed wounds crawling with maggots. The Skatari Hospital was built on a literal cesspool. The only toilets were a pair of wooden tubs in the middle of the ward that were almost never emptied, so you have an enormous tub of crap in the middle of the hospital. And the water sources were full of animal corpses and human waste. They found out that the main water source was literally being flowed through the body of a rotting body of a dead horse. The British Army's wounded were covered in their own blood, pus, and feces, and the death rate was apocalyptic. of the entire British army in the East died in January 1855, almost all from disease. They didn't even fight a major battle in this time period, they just died by the score. The French, on the other hand, had this thing figured out. Their soldiers trained in basic first aid. They had field hospitals with doctors and medical staff who were part of a professional medical corps. Their hospital in Constantinople was serviced by Catholic nuns, the so-called Sisters of Mercy who were experienced in medical work and nursing. Compared to the horror movie of Scutari, the French hospital sounded like a freaking resort. Fanny Duberly was appalled.
1: Where are our huts? Where are our stables? All lying at Constantinople. The French are hutting themselves in all directions while we lie in mud and horses and men die alike of an exposure which might be oh so easily prevented. It is all alike. The same utter neglect and mismanagement runs throughout."
0: The Ottoman troops on the Crimea were under British administration and the British blamed them for the defeat at Balaclava since they had failed to defend the redoubts. So you can see where this is going. The Turkish soldiers were treated miserably, downright cruelly, beaten and cursed and neglected. Of all the armies, the Ottomans on the Crimea suffered the most. Of the 4,000 who had fought at Balaclava, half would die from malnutrition alone by the end of the year. So why were the British failing so badly? Well, the whole British officer corps collectively bore a significant amount of blame. Most British officers were pretty darn comfortable in well-built cabins and houses, far away and often ignorant to the suffering of their men. After all, we're the upper class, they're the lower class. Cardigan, for instance, was on his yacht, and many officers just left the Crimea for the winter like it was a seasonal resort. The soldiers couldn't do that, but officers like Prince George, Duke of Cambridge, and George Lacey Evans were like, well, this sucks, I'm going home, they just left. Uh, Some officers didn't even realize how bad their men were suffering until they read the newspapers, a downright criminal level of neglect. Lord Raglan didn't help. He seemed more concerned with matters of protocol and administrative duties than fixing the situation on the ground. British government officials always complained about how Raglan just seemed to write about routine, trivial administrative details like he was just back in his office rather than dealing with an actual war. In supply, transport, medical, well, that was all someone else's job. Some other department. Raglan did what he felt was in his authority to do, but he never stepped beyond it, because that would be rude. Like, okay, look, look, I've read a lot of defenses of Raglan's behavior in the winter. There was nothing he could do, it was outside his responsibility, he was helpless, but if he understood the emergency, he did not communicate it to London. He was just too... Nice, too nice to his staff, too nice to the supply and transport and medical people, too nice to his bosses. He should have been raising hell about the lack of materials, the lazy supply clerks, the poor organization, the abominable medical services. But, well, that would be mean. That wouldn't be gentlemanly. So Raglan worked a lot, filling out paperwork and writing letters, but he did very little. A good commander will move heaven and earth to help their men. Raglan barely seemed to move at all. He didn't even encourage his soldiers. Raglan always refused to give speeches or ride along the lines or show himself in uniform. He considered it unmanly or ungentlemanly to show emotion or empathy. When Raglan came out to see the victorious heavy brigade after Balaklava, the colonel of the fourth dragoon said that his men came out to cheer their commander. But he did not say anything. How I longed for him to do so as I walked by his horse's head. One little word, well, my boys, you have done well, or something of the sort would have cheered us all up. But Raglan wouldn't even acknowledge them. The British soldiers came to believe that Raglan didn't give a crap about them, and could you blame him? Raglan, do any part of your job. But it wasn't just Raglan. It's easy to say, well, Raglan screwed it up, but it wasn't just Rag. He was a product of the british system and it was the british system that was failing the military was administered by 11 different departments back in london literally 11 different departments there's no department of defense there's 11 departments of defense that all have a little part of the responsibility and failed to coordinate and blamed each other when something went wrong the officer corps was an army of gentlemen trained to lead troops on the drill square but not in the field the supply system was full of unmotivated civilians and strangled by red tape it was rotten from top to bottom Raglan was only part of the problem. By the end of December 1854, out of the 25,000 British soldiers who had landed on the Crimea, only 11,000 were fit for duty. It was a nightmare. The freezing men in the trenches, the miserable sick dying by the load, the pathetic wounded at Scutari, and their leaders unwilling or unable to help them. In the old days, this probably never would have been fixed. The army on the Crimea would have died. But this was the Victorian age, and now we have something called the Telegraph. We have mass media. We have a higher newspaper readership than ever before, and that means we have journalists. The Crimean War was the first war to have actual war correspondence. Newspapers like the London Times had reporters at the war front to tell the public what was going on, because they had a right to know. And guys... This had never happened before. Not like this. A few decades ago, it would have taken months or years to get the story of what was happening. But in the Crimea, thanks to the telegraph and the railroad and the steamboat, people could find out what was going on in a matter of days, if not hours. And the British public were desperate for news from the Crimea. This was the first mass media war driven by the rise in education, literacy, the public awareness of the middle and lower classes. The same public opinion that had driven Britain to war wanted to know how their war was going. Newspaper readership was higher than ever before, as the middle class and working class sought any scrap of information. It was a public obsession. History had never seen anything like it. It was the first mass media war, and it could only happen in Britain, the most literate and most free speech country in Europe. The first war correspondent to break the ice was Thomas Chennery who revealed the poor medical services at Scutari in the London Times on October 12, 1854. Not only are there not sufficient surgeons, not only are there no dressers or nurses, but what will be said when it is known that there is not even linen to make bandages for the wounded? It was this report that stirred Florence Nightingale into action, but we'll get to her. Then there was William Howard Russell, the Times reporter on the Crimea itself. I've already quoted this guy a few times throughout the series so far. He coined the phrase Thin Red Line. Russell spent the winter in the Crimea with the British Army, sending daily reports back to London on the miserable conditions. In the old days, no one would ever have heard of this and no one would have cared. The British soldier was assumed to be a low-class scoundrel, his wife the same, who cared what happened to them but not anymore. Russell's daily newspaper report sparked a wave of outrage in Britain. Far from being the low-class scum of the earth that British soldiers had usually been seen as, there was now pride in the good-natured Tommy fighting for English liberty in a foreign land, and this transformed into sheer outrage at the disgraceful situation on the Crimea. Raglan, for his part, hated Russell, hated them worse than anyone, Raglan claimed that Russell's reports were a threat to operational security, that he was giving away military secrets through his pen. And in some cases, this might have been true. Tsar Nicholas definitely read the British newspapers, and there were jokes going on in St. Petersburg about the poor conditions of the British army, which Russell had revealed. But really, the real issue was that Raglan seemed to care less about his men and more about the bad press. Yeah, my troops are freezing to death, but do you have to write about it? Man, that's the real problem here. The tug of war between Raglan and Russell, between national security and the public right to know, began a debate that continues today. Thanks to the Industrial Revolution and the Telegraph, information moved faster and more freely than it ever had before. This created a new tension between military authority and the press, because now we can really start talking about a press accusations of censorship and negligence and incompetence, accusations of treason and violating security and undermining the war effort, which we've seen in the World Wars and in Vietnam and the War on Terror. It began here, in the dispute between Raglan and Russell on the Crimea in the first mass media war. The reports from the Crimea had the British public boiling with rage. Lord Aberdeen's government was overwhelmed by the scandal, by the neglect that led to so many troops dying overseas. When a motion of inquiry into the conduct of the war was introduced in Parliament, Aberdeen's government had clearly lost the confidence of the voting public. It was the first time a media scandal like this, a war scandal like this, had caused the downfall of a British ministry. On January 30, 1855, Queen Victoria was forced to ask her least favorite politician in the world to form a new government. This was Lord Palmerston, the radical liberal interventionist, the man who wanted to take the Russian Empire apart like a Lego set, and now he was the Prime Minister of Great Britain. But the change in government would not save the British army. This would fall to the volunteers, the people who would step in where the authorities had failed, the middle class, the working class, and most of all, the women. And foremost among the women was someone history remembers as the founder of modern nursing, the lady with the lamp, Florence Nightingale. By Christmas 1854, Britain was ablaze with patriotic spirit. The aristocracy, the poor, even the middle class, even, yeah, this last one was surprising. In Britain, traditionally, the middle classes didn't go to war. The poor went to war as soldiers, the rich went to war as officers, but the middle class usually just stayed home and paid taxes. War wasn't their business, their job was to make money. But the world had changed. Mass media and education and nationalism had created the new public consciousness. The middle classes were invested in a war for the first time in British history. Women founded charity organizations, sending clothing and food to the Crimea. Thousands donated to the London Times Crimea Fund for soldiers' care packages. Even Queen Victoria and the ladies of Buckingham Palace got into the act, knitting clothing for the boys overseas. Queen Victoria said,
1: We are, and indeed the whole country is entirely engrossed with one idea, one anxious thought, the Crimea. I feel so proud of my dear noble troops who, they say, bear their privations and the sad disease which still haunts them with such courage and good humor.
0: Many women knitted woolen hoods, which they nicknamed balaclavas, and woven sweaters nicknamed cardigans after the commander of the Light Brigade. So there's your contribution to modern vocabulary. This support was nice, but it wasn't enough. For the reformist middle classes with their romantic notions, their efforts were much more enthusiastic than effective. It would fall to the people actually in the east to save the British army in the Crimea. One of them stands above all. There is a whole lot to say about Florence Nightingale. I don't have time to say it all. She is the most famous single person in the history of the Crimean War, regarded today as the founder of modern nursing. She is one of the greats, an icon, one of those innovators and reformers who shaped the modern world. She was also a complicated person, with flaws and rougher edges to her personality that don't always get acknowledged by her cult. But uh, if anybody deserves to have a cult, If there's anybody whose bubble I don't think deserves to be burst, it's hers. Her impact was undeniable. Florence came from a wealthy, well connected family in the English upper class, a family she disappointed by choosing a medical career instead of marrying and having kids like a good Victorian woman. She was educated in German medical facilities and was already running a hospital in London when she read about the medical crisis at Scutari, particularly the lack of nurses. Florence got permission and encouragement from her personal friend, Secretary at War Sidney Herbert, she was very well connected, to raise a corps of volunteer nurses and take them to Constantinople. Florence Nightingale shattered the normal expectations of the shy, polite women of the Victorian age. She was driven by a radical reformist spirit and a devout but unorthodox Christian faith that skirted on the Unitarian, along with a dash of early feminism. She was bold and almost severe, a dominating personality and just a little bit of a control freak. Florence was brutally efficient in choosing her nurses, turning away hundreds of well-meaning upper and middle class volunteers because they didn't fit her criteria. She looked for working class women and Catholic nuns, women who would actually work, finally selecting 38 women for her first cohort. Eventually 229 women would make their way to Constantinople and work on her team. Florence Nightingale, 34 years old, reached Constantinople on November 5th, 1854. She and her nurses set up in the rancid Scutari Hospital, just in time to receive the hundreds of wounded from Inkerman. Soon her nurses were struggling uphill against miserable hygiene, rotten weather, zero supplies, and severe lack of man and woman power. There was just too much to do and not enough of them to do it. Men were dying at a calamitous rate. In February 1855, 52% of the patients in the Scutari hospital died, the vast majority of them from disease. The nurses worked almost 24-7 feeding the men, washing them, dressing their wounds, administering medicine. And every day more arrived, victims of typhus, dysentery, cholera. The situation had started bad and it was getting worse. The British Army's medical professionals were downright hostile to Florence Nightingale. There was this notion that women didn't belong in medical work, that they weren't constitutionally built for it, that they would faint at the mere thought of blood and gore and pus. But women had been doing this crap for centuries. Florence's team of nurses are portrayed in lots of sources as breaking a glass ceiling, doing something new. But the sad truth is, we know that camp followers have been doing this for centuries, the glass ceiling. Was a recent installation. Florence's arch nemesis was Dr. John Hall, the British Army's Surgeon General. Hall was a conservative, hidebound doctor who hated any medical innovations, including the use of anesthetics during surgery. He didn't like it. He said, However barbarous it may appear, the smart use of the knife is a powerful stimulant, and it is much better to hear a man bawl lustily than to see him sink silently into the grave. If it needs to be said, modern surgery does generally not view a man screaming and thrashing around during an operation as a positive. Hall hated Nightingale hated her, enough that when she got sick in May 1855, he tried to use an underhanded trick to ship her back to London without her consent. The other constraint was bureaucratic red tape. Florence had to buy most of her supplies with her own money, assisted by the Times Crimea Fund, and she also had to fight the medical establishment tooth and nail. You could say this was a contest of, um, Florence versus the machine. Yes, I've been holding on to that joke since I've started planning this series. The stress was unbearable. Many of the nurses were so overwhelmed that they succumbed to alcoholism, resulting in Miss Nightingale sending them home. Any misbehavior, she stomped on immediately. Florence observed that the British upper classes despised the lower classes, and this extended to the military, with the officers and administrators not seeming to give a crap about the lives of their men. She wrote to her family that...
1: What the horrors of war are, no one can imagine. They are not wounds and blood and fever. They are intoxication, drunken brutality, demoralization and disorder on the part of the inferior. Jealousies, meanness, indifference, selfish brutality on the part of the superior.
0: Florence worked 20 hours a day, and when her paperwork and inspections and arguments and desperate letter writings were over, she wandered the wards with a lamp, speaking to the soldiers and praying with them. It was for this that Florence Nightingale would gain the legend of the Lady with the Lamp. Where she went, the dark seemed to melt, but there was just so much dark. Despite everything she and her women did, she was in a near panic as the death rate continued to climb. Bit by bit, Florence and her nurses dragged order out of chaos. She instituted basic hygiene procedures like hand washing and sterilization. Remember, this is still an age where Ignaz Semmelweis's radical idea, hey, maybe wash your hands before you do surgery or even between surgeries, caused him to be committed to an insane asylum. But Florence enforced hand washing and hygiene. She reorganized the kitchens, hired laundresses, broke the locks off storehouses to attain her supplies. None of this was a medical revolution. She wasn't reinventing the wheel. Florence's gift was an administration, organization, and sheer iron will. Under her supervision, the death rate fell from 44% to only 2.2% in six months. Her courageous and untiring work to save the British soldiers of the Crimea would help make Florence Nightingale like the patron saint or goddess, I guess, of public health. But Florence's lamp often outshines the lights of others. Many of the overworked British doctors, orderlies, and medical staff were doing their best, they were just being overwhelmed. Turkish hospitals were pretty darn good. They used basic hygienic practices like pest fumigation that were unheard of in Christian Europe. The French hospitals, run by hard-working doctors and Sisters of Mercy, were almost as overwhelmed as the British. The cantinières and vivandires of the French army worked as impromptu nurses, and often walked through shellfire to deliver food and drink to their soldiers or carry off casualties. William Howard Russell reported that, A buxom French cantinière accompanied her battalion to the trenches, to supply them with food and drinks, and to brave with masculine courage the storm of shot and shell. Towards the small hours of the morning, she gave birth to twins, mother and children are doing well. Like I said, given birth in the freaking trenches at Sevastopol. Now, Florence had almost no authority in the Crimea itself. The hospitals at the front line and in Balaclava were almost as bad as in Scutari, and Lord Raglan and his staff had failed to recognize a resource that was right in front of them, the British Army Wives. Camp followers had functioned as nurses for centuries, but at some point the army had forgotten its own traditions. They no longer deemed it proper to use army wives as nurses since it wasn't a woman's place, even though it had been like 50 years ago. Short memories, right? But the wives stepped in anyway. One was our army wife, Nell Butler. She remembered the trauma of her first surgery. The doctor ordered her to hold a patient's hands in place while he amputated the poor man's leg. Nell watched as the doctor gave the soldier a swig of brandy and no other anesthetic, then began to cut.
1: The doctor took a long, bright knife and a saw. I lost all feeling and hung onto the man's hands as much to help myself as him. I could hear the grating of the saw.
0: Nell passed out from the shock and woke up to find the doctor berating her for her weakness. But from that point on, Nell Butler was a nurse. While nursing michael back to health she tore up her petticoats to make bandages for the wounded men and pounded up poultices from old pieces of fabric she even had to make her own surgical thread by coating it with pitch and fat nell became her regiment's savior remembered by the men of the 95th as the frontline florence nightingale she wasn't the only one dozens of other regimental wives became the mvps of the winter sewing washing cooking and nursing all the things the men no longer had the time or energy to do. Liz Evans would even creep through Russian musket and cannon fire to stand by her husband for hours on his guard shift. The women of the Allied army worked to bring their men through the melting dark. The Russian hospitals were even worse. There's a general rule. French are pretty good, British are pretty bad, Russians are worse in most of this, most of this war. The beds in Sevastopol and the Russian headquarters at Simferopol were filled to the brim, and many wounded had to be carried by open carts through the freezing weather into Ukraine. Men weren't operated on for weeks or even months. The weather killed many, and soon a trail of bodies littered the road to the besieged city. But Russia has its own medical hero of the Crimean War, Dr. Nikolai Pyrdegov, professor at the Surgical Academy of St. Petersburg, the father of modern war surgery. He took several of his best surgeons to the Crimea with him in November 1854. Pirogov was outraged at the sheer neglect he found in Sevastopol and immediately started getting things organized, implementing hygienic practices and laying down the law about organization and discipline. But he was soon being overwhelmed by the sheer number of wounded coming from the front lines around the city. To handle the flow, Pyrigov implemented a system where the wounded would be assessed when they came to the hospital. Those with life-threatening injuries who could be saved received priority, those with non-critical injuries took a number and waited, and those who could not be saved were taken to another ward where the nurses and priests could look after them, give them anesthetics, and take their last wishes. This ruthless but necessary prioritization is now known as triage, and Pirogov's innovations were a major advance in battlefield surgery. Pirogov also pioneered the use of anesthetics, sterilization, and different surgical techniques in his work on the Crimea. Anesthetics were often discouraged in the medical practice of the day, since it was believed like Dr. John Hall believed, they did more harm than good. But Pirogov recognized that he could do surgery much quicker and much more efficiently if the patient wasn't screaming his lungs out. Pirogov's practices caused death rates in the Sevastopol hospitals to decline radically. He and his doctors and nurses saved thousands of lives. Because the Russian women stepped in as well. Some of these nurses were recruited by noblewomen in the Tsar's court and sent to the Crimea. These Russian Sisters of Mercy were heroines equal to Florence and her nurses, even carrying the wounded from the front lines and stretchers braving against shot and shell but many were residents of Sevastopol itself, including Darya Mikhailova, our nurse. She became Pirogov's most dedicated surgical assistant, standing by his side through those dark days in the winter of 1854 to 55. Pirogov was full of praise for the nurses. He couldn't say enough good things about how critical these women were to the survival of the Russian army. Darya herself was recognized for her bravery. When the Tsar heard her story of how she had carried the wounded from the Alma and organized the nurses of Sevastopol, he officially awarded her the Order of Saint Vladimir and a gift of 1,500 silver rubles. Darya was the only lower-class Russian woman to ever receive the order. She continued her work next to Dr. Piragov in the fiery hell of Sevastopol, doing her part to drive back the melting dark. It took thousands of courageous individuals, men and women, to get the armies on the Crimea through the winter. In Britain, France, and Russia, it was the mobilization of the working and middle classes that rescued their soldiers from the failures of the upper class. The doctors and nurses, the army wives and the cantiniers, defied their class systems and gender roles in taking up the challenge and driving back the melting dark. They were changing the world in more ways than they imagined. By February 1855, the British were getting a grip on their logistics problems. Under pressure from the new Palmerston government, Lord Raglan was forced to fire much of his staff, and new men were brought in to fix the mess. Even the French lent a hand to help their allies. Hey Brits, you you okay over there? (laughs) The Brits were not okay. The army founded a new Land Transport Corps and new services in general, all these professional military services to replace the old civilian organizations. Even Lord Raglan seemed to be doing his part. I guess someone got to him finally, because he actually started visiting his soldiers in the hospital and taking a personal hand in supply matters. Corporal Jowett's Diary, March 10th. Weather splendid. Everything is going on beautiful and looks very pleasant. A great many things have arrived of late from the Crimean Army Fund, such as butter, potatoes, onions, herrings, bacon, sugar, tea, and a variety of other articles. Every soldier in the British camp is truly grateful to the benevolent people of England for sending us so many good things. I cannot find the words to express my gratitude. On March 21, 1855, William Jowett was finally promoted to sergeant. Sergeant Jowett's care packages showed that the British public was fully invested in their war effort, and this new interest was enhanced by the arrival of Messrs. Roger Fenton and James Robertson in March 1855. They brought with them an entirely new way of seeing the war, literally, because they brought cameras. The Crimean War was the first European war to be photographed, and Fenton and Robertson were the first war photographers. Before this, the folks back home had had to read everything secondhand or see paintings or sketches or drawings. But the photograph, photography, I'll remind you guys, literally a few years old like it was invented within the last few years, made everything seem so much more real, so immediate. Now this was still 1850s photography, you had to sit still for like 20 minutes to get any sort of image. There was no say cheese, you just said cheese for 20 minutes, it sounded like you were dying. So there were no combat shots or anything like that. The closest they got was Roger Fenton's famous photograph, Valley of the Shadow of Death, of a hill near the Sebastopol Trenches full of cannonballs. I mean, he was also quoting from the Alfred Lord Tennyson poem about the Charge of the Light Brigade, which had also been published only a few months earlier. Given that his audience were the polite middle class, this was the closest Roger Fenton could get to showing any kind of violence. They didn't even want PG-13 back then, it it had to be G-rated. But the images of soldiers, camps, trenches, men and women on the front lines, well, people back home felt like they were looking through a window at the Crimea. It made the war much more engaging. But the Industrial Revolution came in other forms as well. A British entrepreneur named Samuel Pito arrived on the Crimea at the beginning of February 1855, and he held the key to the long-term supply issues of the Allied Army. He came with a construction crew and the materials for a railroad. Like Florence Nightingale, Pito was a working professional, one of the great British construction and railroad magnates who had made Britain the workshop of the world. He was one of those guys who had came from, went from rags to riches. He had heard about the British supply problems, and he was determined to fix them through the use of modern technology. Peto's mostly Irish navvies, singing their songs and drinking a bunch of beer, built seven miles of track by the end of March, running up the former dirt track from Balaclava to the trench lines of Sevastopol. Now steam power was doing what all the men and horses in the British Army were unable to do. The Grand Crimean Central Railway was the first purpose-built military railroad. Welcome to the First Industrial War. Because the Industrial Revolution had revolutionized military logistics. Back in the day, the Allied Army on the Crimea would have been completely unsustainable by old sailing ships and all the old technology. But thanks to the industrial economies of Britain and France, every ounce of supply could now be transported by steam power hundreds of miles from Western Europe to Balaclava. The railroads inside Britain and France transported raw materials to the factories, then transported them to the ports, where steamboats carried them to Constantinople and Balaclava, where they went by rail to the front lines. And most ominously, the Grand Crimean Railway's first train load carried not clothing or food or men, but thousands of artillery shells. The steam and steel of the Industrial Revolution were about to bring the siege of Sevastopol into a new, terrible phase. The logistics of the Crimean War are a funny paradox. By early 1855, the British and the French were becoming better supplied than the Russians, who were fighting inside their own borders. First, because the Allies had the new power of the Industrial Revolution backing them up. Second, because the Russians had run head-on into the Iron Hand of Logistics. The Allies had bypassed the Iron Hand thanks to their use of sea power and now steam power. Without the sea power, industrial base, or railways to supply their forces in the Crimea, the Russians struggled to sustain their enormous army. I mean, okay guys, I could do a whole nother logistics of the Crimean War short round and it would be great, but I'll just say, hmm, remember how hard it is to supply 20,000 men over 400 miles with only men and animals? Okay, so how hard is it to supply 100,000 men over almost 1,000 miles? Well that was the problem the Russians had. There was only one, one railway in Russia between St. Petersburg and Moscow, a thousand miles away, completely unhelpful. The Crimea itself had been almost picked clean by the winter of 1854. There was no food left, local supply was dead. So all the food had to be transported from Ukraine. Every ounce of supply had to be transported by foot or by wagons, and in winter this was almost impossible. The Russians kept trying, But dead animals and men lined the road into the Crimea, swollen corpses at every step, from Kyrgyzstan or Mariupol to Sevastopol. The pressure on local economies was terrible, as many peasants had their food confiscated. The burden of conscription, taxes, and now the seizure of their food had the serfs in an uproar. As Russia approached spring 1855, the serfs began to demand justice, relief, or even liberation from their shackles especially in Ukraine, one of the most independent-minded provinces in the empire. All this while the army in the Crimea was starving and Russia's economy was threatening to collapse. All of this weighed heavily on Tsar Nicholas I. He had aged rapidly since the war began. He had lost morale, lost faith, believed that he had led his country into disaster. After 30 years of terrorizing the West as the gendarme of Europe, he had united the West against him, been forced to abandon his Orthodox brethren, had failed in his holy war. Nicholas I was a ruined man. With generals January and February failing to defeat the Western powers, it was clear that Russia was losing the war. Nicholas was increasingly desperate to gain a victory that could turn the war around. He ordered Prince Menshikov to attack something, anything, just attack something. He became obsessed with the port of Yevpatoria, the original Allied landing site, believing that its capture would place more pressure on the Allied siege lines. Yevpatoria was currently held by the Ottoman Nizami troops led by Omer Pasha, who would transfer it over from the Danube region after the Battle of Inkerman. Remember, These are the good Ottoman troops, the high-quality ones, the ones who had defeated the Russians at Oltenitsa and Silistria, led by a very capable general. Omer had dug into the city and had 20,000 troops with 34 guns, in addition to gunfire support from the Allied fleet. Menshikov did not want to launch this attack, he said, Your Majesty, this is a bad idea, and the Nadlus Wonder had a point. But Tsar Nicholas had his way. The attack went forward on February 17th, 1854. The Battle of Yevpatoria lasted three hours. It was a typical, uncoordinated, unimaginative Russian frontal assault. There's not even much point in describing it in detail. The Russians just attacked in their columns and got slaughtered. It cost them 1,500 men. The miserable retreat across the frozen plain left many more dead from the cold. News of the defeat at Yevpatoria was the last straw for the Tsar, a psychological blow on top of his already failing health. He knew he had failed, failed his holy mission, failed his cause, failed his beloved army, led his country into a disastrous war that he no longer believed he could win. Nicholas barely had the energy to give his last few instructions. He ordered Menshikov to be fired and replaced with Prince Gorchakov, and passed over the reins of government to his son, Alexander. In his final moments, Nicholas asked his son to send a message to the defenders of Sevastopol.
1: I have always tried to do my best for them, and where I failed, it was not for a lack of goodwill, but from a lack of knowledge and intelligence. I ask them to forgive me.
0: Tsar Nicholas I died on March 2, 1855. His death was so sudden and his misery was so overwhelming that it has been rumored he committed suicide, though no historical evidence exists to back this up. Nicholas was buried in the Peter and Paul Cathedral in full military uniform, overseen by his son, the new Tsar Alexander II. Just before his coffin was put away, his grieving wife rushed forward to lay something on his chest. It was a silver cross emblazoned with a picture of the Hagia Sophia, the great Orthodox Church of Constantinople, the symbol of all he had tried and failed to achieve. Nicholas I, Tsar and Autocrat of all the Russias, at last laid down his holy cause. Alright guys, I know y'all would be so happy to wallow in the misery of the Crimea for the last part of this episode, but at this point we have to zoom out. We've been on the Crimea for the last few episodes, so it's time to figure out what's been going on outside the Crimea. For one thing, diplomacy is still going on, the allies are trying to hash out their war objectives, and for another thing, the Crimea was not the only theater of the war. As their soldiers outside Sevastopol watched their fingers turn blue, the Allies met in Vienna to hammer out their war aims. Well, some of the Allies. The Ottoman Empire wasn't invited because who cared what they thought. Yep, Sultan and his ministers were not allowed to participate in drawing up Allied strategy for a war that had been started on their behalf. They were honestly maybe a little bit thankful because the war had declined in popularity dramatically as soon as it started, Most residents of the Ottoman Empire didn't even seem to care or know sometimes that a war was even going on. So what did the Allies want out of this thing? That was the big question. Austria, which was still not at war with Russia, wanted one big thing. The restoration of the Concert of Europe and the balance of power. The Austrians wanted to reestablish their pre-war status quo. They still hadn't gotten over the revolutions of 1848, which had almost destroyed their empire, and they believed that more instability in Europe might lead to another revolutionary wave. Austria, a multi-ethnic empire held together by the grace of all the other empires, had the most to lose if the balance of power collapsed. But they warned Russia that if the war continued and Russia refused to accept reasonable peace terms, then Austria would be forced to declare war. Napoleon III of France wanted two big things, to blow up the Concert of Europe and to keep his throne. The first objective was pretty much accomplished. By getting Austria on his side against Russia, Napoleon had driven a wedge between France's two most consistent opponents. So yeah, France and Austria are kind of working at cross purposes here. The second objective was more difficult. Over the winter of 1854-55, the French secret police reported growing war weariness inside France. The French people weren't enthusiastic about the war, especially not when they failed to achieve a quick victory at Sevastopol. They saw the conflict as unnecessary and complained that French blood was being shed for British gain. There was even talk of a military coup. Napoleon decided that the war, this war has done what I wanted it to do, but first I have to gain some sort of military triumph before I get out of it. Otherwise, How can I call myself Napoleon? Britain, now led by Prime Minister Lord Palmerston, was on a different course. Palmerston was the most anti-Russian politician in Britain, and he was still talking about turning the Crimean War from a limited war with limited goals into a total war for dismembering the Russian Empire. This idea had shocked most people at first, but the longer the war went on, the less crazy it seemed. Plus, Palmerston was the candidate of the British middle classes and wielded the might of public opinion. The middle classes had only grown more committed and invested in the war as time went on, since all this sacrifice and suffering had to achieve something, didn't it? British public opinion was fired up in favor of a complete victory against Russia. If the middle classes had their way, this war would continue until Russia was no longer a great power. So out of everybody, all the allies, only Britain wanted to make this war bigger, not end it as fast as possible. So on December 2nd, 1854, the British, French, and Austrian diplomats signed a treaty that laid out their desired peace terms to end the Crimean War. These terms were known as the Four Points. One, two, three, four. Number one, the Danubian principalities would be removed from the Russian sphere of influence and guaranteed by all the great powers. Number two, Freedom of navigation on the Danube River. Number 3, a vague point that just said that the current treaties on the status of the Bosphorus and Black Sea would be revised. Number 4, Russia would give up its claim of exclusive protection of the Christians within the Ottoman Empire. Britain and France alone also agreed on a fifth point that the Black Sea would be demilitarized and the naval base at Sevastopol would be destroyed. The treaty ended with a public statement that more points would be added if Russia didn't back down, which Lord Palmerston hoped he could use to widen the war and wedge some other stuff in there at some point down the road. These were the Allied peace terms, the four points. Reasonable enough for Austria, glorious enough for France, flexible enough for Britain. But Russia was not having it. Tsar Alexander II was determined to continue his father's war and achieve a peace deal commensurate with Russian honor. The four points in combination, especially demilitarizing the Black Sea, would mean the end of Russia as a Black Sea power, one of the things they deemed critical to their status as a great power. So peace talks were a no-go. If the Allies wanted to end the war on the basis of the four points, they would have to score some kind of decisive victory to force Russia into negotiations. Of course, making that happen was easier said than done. As the armies struggled on the Crimea, The Allies were fighting Russia on multiple other fronts, none of which seemed to be very promising. Alright y'all, it's time for a big worldwide roundup of the Crimean War outside the Crimea. If any non-Crimean theater was going to be decisive, it would be the Baltic Sea. You guys, Britain has never been a big fan of land wars. They hate them. They had sleepwalked their way into one on the Crimea, and look what has happened. <laughs> no, Britain's main strategy in almost every war has been naval and economic. They used the powerful Royal Navy to blockade their enemy's ports, while their allies on the continent did the heavy lifting in the land war. This was just how the British always fought their wars. So when Great Britain went to war with Russia in 1854, the first thing they asked was, okay, Where does Russia touch the sea? Let's attack them there. And Russia seemed most vulnerable in the Baltic Sea, between Scandinavia and the rest of Europe. Because Russia's capital city in 1854 wasn't Moscow. It was St. Petersburg, located on the eastern end of the Baltic. St. Petersburg was defended by the massive island fortress of Kronstadt, legendary as one of the world's strongest citadels. But still, The Baltic Sea had the potential to be the decisive theater of the war, even more decisive than the Crimea, if you can believe it. If Russia lost Sevastopol, that would hurt, but it wouldn't threaten Russia's survival. If the Tsar's palace came under the guns of the Royal Navy, well, that would be another story. So in March 1854, a British fleet of 44 ships under Admiral Sir Charles Napier set out for the Baltic. It was the largest fleet Britain had fielded since the Napoleonic Wars. The Russian Baltic fleet knew it was outnumbered, so they decided to hide in St. Petersburg behind the guns of Kronstadt. They refused to come out and play, while the British sat outside and called them chicken. There would be no big British-Russian naval battle in this conflict, the Russians were not stupid enough to try that. So out of frustration, Napier's ships ravaged the coasts of Russian-ruled Finland, burning towns and sinking any ships they could find. They committed several atrocities, including the destruction of Aulu in northern Finland. This damaged British relationships with other Baltic powers and turned Napier's name into an insult in St. Petersburg. There was only one really noteworthy event in the 1854 Baltic Campaign. On August 16th, with the assistance of 10,000 French soldiers, Napier captured the fortress of Bomersund in the Åland Islands, which lie between Sweden and Finland. For the loss of only 85 men, the Allies took 2,000 Russian prisoners and destroyed the fortress and its dockyards. Okay everyone, polite applause. Not sure what this actually accomplished, but at least Napier wasn't sending a light cavalry brigade down a valley of death for no tangible benefit. He was successfully capturing an island. For no tangible benefit. But Napier refused to attack the great fortress of Kronstadt, for darn good reason. The Allies reconnoitered the fortress and learned a few things. First, they needed shallow-draft gunboats to navigate the Baltic coasts. Second, their wooden steamships were going to do very badly against these hardened citadels with their heavy guns, a lesson the Allies were about to learn in front of Sebastopol in October. Third, the Russians had added another fun toy to the list of new military technology in the Crimean War. This was the Underwater Mine, known at that time as the Torpedo. Three British steamships struck mines near Kronstadt, though the mines weren't powerful enough to do any real serious damage. They weren't that strong yet. British naval officers cursed the unchivalrous, unsporting new inventions, calling them Infernal Machines. Come on, guys, not fair. These aren't the rules we agreed to. Unable to attack Kronstadt, Napier had to withdraw his fleet from the Baltic before winter. The Baltic campaign of 1854 was a big disappointment. As weird as it might seem, the British and the Russians both placed a lot of value on this campaign, on the Baltic, almost as much as they did on the war in the Crimea. The lack of any real results in 1854 boosted Russian morale and infuriated the British public, and Napier was replaced with Admiral Sir Richard Dundas. For the campaign of 1855, Dundas would lead an even larger British and French fleet of 105 ships, including around 50 shallow draft gunboats and mortar boats. So as the Crimea was climbing out of the cataclysmic winter, yet another fleet steamed into the Baltic in April 1855. Once again, the British attacked Russian ports, and once again they approached Kronstadt to see if it was any softer this time. This was actually a big scare for St. Petersburg, like the city was holding its breath. Tsar Alexander II could look out the windows of his palace and see the smoke from the Allied ships on the horizon to the west. But Kronstadt was even tougher than it had been last year, It was defended by hundreds of guns, thousands of troops, and at least 300 underwater mines. The Russians were saying, do it, I dare you, and the British said, you know what, Eh, I'm gonna pass. The Crimean War had reached a stalemate in the Baltic. The wooden steamships were not strong enough to challenge the stone fortresses, heavy guns and mines of the Russian defenses, but the Russian fleet was too weak to challenge the Allies. Queen Victoria's cousin, Prince Ernest, wrote to her that There is the town before us with its numerous churches and spires and its endless batteries all showing their teeth ready to bite us if we give them a chance. The entrance of the harbor is guarded by two huge forts and to arrive at these ships must first pass the three tiers 78 guns of Fort Risbank. From our masthead we could distinctly see the gilt cupolas and towers of St. Petersburg. So close and yet so far. Unless the Allies came up with some new technology, there would be no bombardment of the Russian capital. Admiral Dundas comforted himself with a successful bombardment of Sveborg, the fortress which guarded Helsinki from August 9th to 11th. And that was it. The Allies had rolled around the Baltic for about two years, shot their cannons a bunch and accomplished very little, just kind of putzing around like a kid waiting for his mom to finish clothes shopping while all the real action was going on down in the Crimea. So the Baltic campaigns of 54 and 55 seemed like a complete wash, and they mostly were. But they did accomplish one big thing. They pinned a lot of Russian forces around the Baltic. Almost 300,000 Russian troops were constantly on guard in Finland, St. Petersburg, and the Baltic states, a drain on Russian resources. This was almost a third of their army. And the Allies had even bigger plans for 1856, because they were bringing out a new kind of fighting ship, one that was clad in iron. While the western allies were splashing around in the Baltic, a different kind of war was taking place on the Russian-Ottoman border. This was the Caucasus Front, which I touched on in part one, but we haven't been back to since. But as I said then, this is a constant battlefront. Throughout the entire Crimean War, the Russians and Ottomans were fighting it out in the Caucasus. For the Ottomans, after the Danube Front was closed down and the European allies went off to happy fun times on the Crimea, the Caucasus became their main theater. Almost all the combat on the Caucasus Front would take place between the main Ottoman strongpoint of Kars and the Russian strongpoint of Alexandropol, aka Gyumri, in modern day Armenia. This front was bitter, miserable, difficult for both sides. The Caucasus is a crazy, complex patchwork of high mountains, river valleys, thick forests, open plateaus, and deep ravines. Very ethnically and religiously diverse, you got Armenians, Georgians, Turks, Greeks, all sorts of people up in here. And it was also at the extreme end of both sides' supply routes, so logistics were always a major problem. The Russians had a second problem. They were dealing with several major rebellions, the Islamic, Circassian, and Dagestani rebellions that were aligned with the Ottomans. This is a whole other can of beans that I will discuss in much more detail in a short round at the end of this series. So this is my little advertisement for that. Look for the Caucasian Wars later this month. One aspect of the Caucasus Front was the practice of taking captives or slaves, This was mostly on the Ottoman side, since the slave trade was still alive and well inside the Ottoman Empire. Most of the high-quality Nizami troops had been on the Danube and were now in the Crimea. The majority of Ottoman troops on the Caucasus front were the undisciplined irregulars, the Bashi Bazooks. These were guys who were much more skilled at stealing and looting than killing and shooting. They had a bad habit of attacking local Georgian or Armenian villages and carrying off captives for the slave markets of Constantinople. That being said, the Russians had a bad habit of torching any slightly rebellious town and deporting entire hostile populations to Siberia, so let's just say, you don't want to be a civilian on the Caucasus front. If you time travel, don't go here. In fact, it's probably best if you don't time travel at all. So in 1854, the Ottoman armies were under the command of Zarif Pasha, a local governor without much military experience. He relied on the mostly European advisors who worked on his staff. This included a lot of Polish, Hungarian, and Romanian refugees from their various revolutions and wars of independence. But there was also an American working for the Ottoman Empire's army in the Caucasus. And you gotta hear about this guy. Washington C. Tevis, aka Charles C. Tevis, was born in Philadelphia in 1829, graduated West Point in 1845, commissioned into the U.S. Army as a cavalry officer, resigned in 1850, traveled to Europe, and got himself a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the Ottoman Army. Throughout the Crimean War, he would lead a battalion of Bashi Bazooks on the Caucasus Front under the name Nasim Bey. Why? I don't know why that was his name. After the Crimean War, he received a bunch of medals, invented a new kind of revolver, published a book on guerrilla warfare, married a rich Jewish heiress, fought in the Union Army during the Civil War, raised a cavalry unit from Confederate prisoners of war, got arrested for interfering in an election, planned a filibuster and expedition into Canada, joined the Papal States Army, fought for the French in the Franco-Prussian War, joined the Egyptian Army as a general, became a spy for the British Secret Service, then became a war journalist during the next Russo-Turkish War in 1877 before dying in Paris in 1900, just force-gumping his way across the middle of the 19th century with violence. Where is Hollywood when you need them? So anyway, in August 1854, the Ottomans and Russians fought a major battle at Kurek Derdi, on a green open plain with the peaks of the Caucasus in the distance. There were almost 35,000 Ottoman troops and 25,000 Russians, so it seemed like it should be an Ottoman win. The plan devised by the Ottoman chief of staff, Richard Gion, a Hungarian, seemed like it should work. But Zarif Pasha didn't trust this foreigner or his plan, he believed that this European exile didn't understand how to command Muslim soldiers. So Zarif delayed and kind of sabotaged Gion's plan until the Russians were fully alerted, and when the Battle of Kudak-deri started on August 6, 1854, all the plans were out of sync. The Ottomans experienced some success at first with their artillery forcing the Russians back from several positions. Then a Russian cavalry charge panicked the Turkish soldiers and forced them to fall back too. The battle pitched back and forth, but the deciding factor was the weakness of Ottoman discipline. The Bashi Bazouks and the poorly trained provincial cavalry were kind of bipolar in their tactics. They would charge into battle ferociously, but they would panic at the drop of a hat. Ottoman command problems continued to vex them, with Gion and Zarif Pasha rejecting and countermanding each other's orders. Gion led one last attack personally, but it was futile, and the Ottomans finally retreated in disorder. Their troops had fought bravely, but their lack of discipline and leadership made that irrelevant. The Ottomans suffered nearly 6,000 casualties against 3,000 Russia, but other than that, the battle did nothing to alter the state of affairs in the Caucasus. Kurukderi was a major, but not decisive, defeat. The Ottomans and Russians stared each other down for the rest of 1854. They were in a stalemate. The next year, though, a new Russian general arrived on the scene, General Nikolai Muraviev, an old tiger with fire in his belly. Muraviev knew the Russians were losing the war and that he needed a victory to save his country from total humiliation. He planned to capture the fortress city of Kars to gain a decisive victory on the Caucasus front. So as the Crimean campaign wore on, the Russians were planning to recover their honor in the Caucasus and hopefully turn the tide. We will catch up with the Caucasus in Crimea Part 5. The Baltic and Caucasus fronts were less important for what did happen here than what didn't happen. They could have been decisive, but they weren't. The fact that these two main war fronts were stalemated, deadlocked in high mountains and cold waters, meant that all eyes would be on the Crimea when 1855 rolled around. Just by default, the Crimea would be where the war was decided. Outside of the Crimea, the Baltic, and the Caucasus, there were two minor theaters of the war. It's almost barely worth mentioning, but we're going to talk about them. When the British decided to blockade Russia, they also sent a few ships up through the Arctic around Scandinavia into the White Sea to blockade the icy Russian port of Arkhangelsk. Three British and two French ships reached the White Sea on July 23, 1854. They were too weak to actually attack Arkhangelsk like, guys, we are five tiny ships, what can we do? I know what we can do, attack a bunch of local fishing villages. The obvious choice but the Allies ran into resistance. They attacked a monastery on the Solovetsky Islands. To their surprise, the Orthodox monks shot back, killing one and wounding five British sailors. Ouch, okay, geez. Then on August 22nd, the Allies attacked and destroyed the fishing village of Kola, a quiet little place of no strategic value whatsoever. Gotta do something, I guess. Congratulations on your victory. So that was the Allied White Sea campaign of 1854. In 1855, they came back and attacked a bunch of fishing boats. Gotta say, imagine being one of these guys, knowing that all the important stuff is happening somewhere else while you're over here attacking fishing villages and you're not even good at that. The the monks drove you off. That was the Crimean War in the White Sea. They would have been more useful doing literally anything else. Finally, there was the Pacific Theater. That's right, there was a Crimean War in the Pacific. This happened in the Russian Far East. The British government had always been suspicious of Russian activities in the Far East all the way out here, you know, the area Sarah Palin can see from her house. Kidding. Joke. Joke. I know she didn't actually say that, but uh, keep in mind that at this point though, the Russians still owned Alaska. That wouldn't be part of America until 1867. So the Allies decided to send a small naval squadron to the area to mess up the Russians in the Far East. And guys, this is the only major engagement of the Crimean War that is not on my maps because it took place literally on the other side of the world. In July 1854, British Admiral David Price led a squadron of British and French ships towards the Russian Far East. Their target was the base of Petropavlovsk on the Kamchatka Peninsula. This was almost literally a fight at the end of the world. The Kamchatka is so far away from anything important that it's almost ludicrous anyone was fighting over it. Gotta secure that critical supply of, um, moose antlers or something. The bombardment of Petropavlovsk was set to begin on August 30th, 1854. But that morning, Admiral Price found the strain of command to be too much. He committed suicide in his cabin. This had an understandable impact on the fleet's morale, but French Admiral Auguste Febrier-Despointe took over and pressed the attack. 700 sailors and marines landed near Petropavlovsk and tried to assault the town, but were driven back and forced to return to the ships. Casualties were high enough that the Allies decided to call off the attack, withdrawing to replenish their stores at the American port of San Francisco. The failed Allied attack on Petropavlovsk was a small humiliation for the Allies, but a big morale boost for the Russians, who were happy for any kind of victory at this point in the war. For these random folks in the middle of nowhere defending their little fort, it became a miniature epic, the victory of Petropavlovsk. The British and French shook it off, geared up 16 more ships for another campaign in 1855, and tried again in June. They found Petropavlovsk abandoned and burned the Russians had left and found a new base. After looking for the new Russian base and not finding it, the Allies sailed back in September 1855 without firing a shot. And that was the war in the Pacific. Seriously, guys, the White Sea and Pacific campaigns are weird little fronts that barely accomplished anything. Some histories of the war don't even talk about them at all. But this is unknown soldiers. People were fighting and dying out here, no matter how distant and seemingly unimportant. So I'm going to talk about them. But it is kind of funny how ridiculously remote and useless these operations were. Total waste of energy. Hope you captured plenty of moose antlers. But 1856 was going to be different. There would be a new Pacific expedition, a new White Sea expedition, a new Caucasus campaign. The Allies were gathering their strength. And most of all, a new battle fleet was being put together for the Baltic campaign of 1856. This would be the one... Finally, that would breach the walls of Kronstadt and bring the Tsar's capital under their guns. This would be the Baltic campaign that would finally break through the Russian defenses, the one that could win the war. But before any of these 1856 campaigns actually kicked off, a piece of news arrived. The British and French sailors in London and Calais, the Russian and Turkish soldiers in the Caucasus, even the men in their distant stations in the Pacific, All of them received the news, and they knew what it meant. The other fronts of the war would drop what they were doing and wonder, what now, when they heard the news from the Crimea? The news from the Crimea traveled faster than ever. By April 1855, an underwater telegraph line had been laid from Balaclava, and messages could pass from Allied headquarters to Constantinople, then London, in a few hours. From London, the word went to Paris, St. Petersburg, Rome, Vienna, Berlin. Steamboats would carry the news to the Americas. The first transatlantic telegraph cable wouldn't be laid until 1858. But the news spread quickly, across the world, a world that had been reading newspapers and looking at photographs, reading every word that Karl Marx and William Howard Russell and Fanny Duberly wrote, enraptured by the first great war since the downfall of Napoleon. The world knew the news in a matter of hours, the news that changed everything, the news that decided the Crimean War. Sevastopol had fallen. Next time, we will end the Crimean War. We will see the Siege of Sevastopol end, see how the Crimean War almost became a world war 60 years early. Square away the peace deal, see how the Crimean Wars remember today, and wrap everything up with a big old explanation of why you should care, as always. Now I say next time, and not next week, because I've had to make a wee bit of a change to the schedule. Some real life stuff has come up, and I've had to make a sudden and unscheduled move. That is, move my entire house on short notice. So I hope and pray that you will understand why I'm a little bit behind. I've been packing. But luckily for you guys, and for me, I had a fail safe in mind. I had two Friday short rounds templated for this series, but I'll be releasing both of them together next Monday. These short rounds feature two of the more fascinating figures to emerge from the Crimean War, one a young romantic Russian officer with dreams of a writing career, and the other a Jamaican woman of color who became one of the war's great heroines. We're going to take a good look at both sides of the Siege of Sevastopol through the eyes of Leo Tolstoy and Mary Seacole, both amazing people that you will want to hear all about, I promise. But until then, thanks a bunch for listening today. I hope you've learned that no matter how bad your last camping trip was, you could always be on the Crimea in 1854. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check on my website, UnderSoldierspodcast.com, for the maps. If you want to contribute to my book fund, the donate button is there. I'm on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or draw me a line at undersoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. I will respond in record time. So see you next week for the stories of Leo Tolstoy and Mary Seacole, and then see you the week after that for the fifth and final part of the Crimean War series. The story continues, same place, same time, on Unknown Soldiers.